Our scripture reading is also from the book of Isaiah, chapter 55. We'll be reading Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1. Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good. And let your soul delight itself in fatness. Incline your ear, and come unto me. Hear, and your soul shall live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader, And a commander to the people. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not. And nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee. Because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel. For he hath glorified thee. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. Saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. And it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. For ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. May God bless the reading of His own word. And let us... I invite you again to open God's word in Isaiah 55. As we hope to consider this chapter before us today. Um, Not too long ago, we were in Jeremiah 29, considering that verse that spoke of God's thoughts.
for us, that they are not thoughts of evil, but thoughts of good. And we made reference to verse 8 of Isaiah 55, and today we hope to consider the whole context um, of verse 8, where God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And in the general context here in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, the very well-known chapter in Isaiah, we find Christ Jesus set forth as the sacrificial servant, the one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And then chapter 54, we could say, is a whole chapter setting forth the church, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, the ones that are born out of the suffering servant's sacrifice in chapter 53. So in chapter 54, we read of, of Israel um, being called to enlarge its tents because it would be filled. Um, in chapter 3, um, God would make them inherit the Gentiles. And if you read verse 8 of chapter 54, it says, In a little while I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. So it's all about the church and God's blessing to the church because of what Jesus does as exposed in verse chapter 53. And when we get to chapter 55, um, it's in essence explaining how the blessings that are offered in chapter 53 and the death of the Lord Jesus, and we see the blessing that the church has in chapter 54, will Chapter 55, we'll, we'll connect these two. We'll, we'll explain how these blessings are to be received. How, how is it that souls may be grafted in to the suffering Savior and His work and be part of, of that blessed choir of joy that we read in verse 54? And it seems that the key verses are the ones that I'll read right now, verses 1, 8, and then 11. First, it's the invitation in verse 1 of chapter 55. Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat ye. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. This is the gospel invitation, and it, and it contains a promise, as we will see. And that will be our first point. And we'll call it the sure mercies of David, as we find, in essence, the gospel having been given this name in this, in this context. And our second point, we'll be looking at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. The high thoughts of God. And this is a declaration that is issued forth be, not only because of the gospel, but as we will see, it is part of explaining how someone can receive the gospel. And then the third point is, in essence, a, a gospel guarantee or a divine guarantee. Look at verse 11. So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that 
which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I send it. So let's begin in our first point, the sure mercies of David. Now for those who have no faith, the things that we will talk about today sound like these are things too good to be true. And they are dismissed by the ones who do not believe. But those who receive these promises in faith are the ones who see themselves exactly as those who can accept this offering, who have no money, and they are thirsty. And they have acknowledged there's nothing in themselves with which they can bless them with these great, glorious blessings. Well, that's to whom the invitation is made. Well, why do I call it the sure mercies of David? If you look at verse 3, we read, Incline your ear and come unto me here, and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. So the sure mercies of David are, it's a title for this everlasting covenant. And this everlasting covenant is being brought forth here through this invitation in the very first verse. And now, before I look at the invitation, let's just look at the title, Sure Mercies of David, and knowing that this is the covenant. Remember, the covenant that God made with His people had this general dynamic. God was saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That was like a summary of the covenant. And when David's name is brought in, when we speak of the Davidic covenant, it was the promise God made with David that never ever would there lack one to be upon the throne. And so it is, of course, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who would be the greater David. He would be the one who would be a king through the line of David and who would never die so that there would be an heir. And so um, the sure mercies of David is reminding us of those promises that there would be um, a king upon the throne, that there would be a Messiah. And they are mercies. They are many because it's plural for mercy. There are a few places only in the Bible that mercy is in the plural because of speaking of the many mercies of God. And then also, it's not a hypothetical hope. It, it is a sure and certain hope because it's the sure mercies of David. So David, the promise of the Messiah, that he would be the king forever, that we wouldn't be without a king, without a savior. Glorious things because we're speaking of mercies and certain things because it's the sure mercies of David. Well, there are four truths that we will look at the sure mercies of David. The first truth is that it comes by way of an invitation. It doesn't come just by a mere declaration and it doesn't come immediately as a command. It comes as an invitation. There's a lot of grace when we think of this reality. Um, this invitation has a fourfold um, 
cry for coming. Come ye to the waters, come ye, verse 55, verse 1, come by wine. And then in verse 3, incline your ear and come unto me. And there are fourfold, um, four times that the word listen is in the text, just calling us to listen. The word hearken diligently um, is translated diligently, but in the Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew, it is listen, listen. And by putting it together, the translators say, well, listen diligently, listen carefully. And then in verse 3, incline your ear, that means listen. Come unto me, hear, and your soul shall live. So four times the invitation is to come, four times the invitation is to listen. Who is being invited? The first word is everyone, everyone. We will talk about the qualifying word thirsty, but it's everyone. It's everyone who is thirsty, but it's everyone. We need, we need to stop there for a moment. This is what Matthew Henry, the commentator, says about this reality of everyone. He says, it intimates that in Christ there is enough for all and enough for each, that ministers are to make a general offer of life and salvation to all, that in gospel times the invitation should be more largely made than it had been and should be sent to the Gentiles, and that the gospel covenant excludes none that do not exclude themselves. This last phrase is referring to the word thirsty. Because if somebody were to say, I'm not thirsty, they are excluding themselves from the invitation. If you are to say, I want Jesus, I am thirsty for Him, well, the invitation is for you because you're thirsting. So let's look at the word thirst. And and this is the word thirst, of course, in terms of the soul. It is not just thirst in terms, it's not thirst in terms of wanting water, but that is a figure for, it's a metaphor for the thirsting of the soul. Now notice that, that the text is not saying that there is in this world people who thirst and people who don't. The, the very text commands the reality that every single human thirsts. The problem is that there are some of us who thirst for the wrong things. Why am I saying this? Because God says it. Look at verse 2. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? See, He's calling all who thirst, and He sees that there's some who are thirsting for things that will not satisfy them. They are working hard. They are laboring for that which is not bread. They are wasting time, but they're thirsty. They're thirsty for the wrong things. But you see, when it says, Ho, for, uh, ho everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters, the, the text is actually calling those who are thirsting for the wrong things, hoping and wishing and praying. And of course, the, the, when you think of, of the preacher, we, we, we have these prayers and we have these hopes. God knows exactly who will come and who will not. But this is, this is a gospel call, even for th- People who thirst for the wrong things to realize that they are wasting time, they are dying in their pursuits, and that they would follow and and thirst for what really will give them what they need. This spiritual thirst is is a sense of unrest. And and this is where every single human is, is a part of. Every one of us has an element of quest 
in the soul. Everyone has it. You, you've heard that the reality that every single human is religious. We all are in pursuit of someone or something to worship. The question is not whether we thirst or not, but what do we thirst for? And although we thirst for many things, there's only one thing that will satisfy our thirst. And notice how it's, it's universal. You know, there are those who have this very deep quest. And when I say those, I think it's all of us. We thirst for love. We want to be loved. They want to feel loved. But there's never one who can love you most and who can love you better and more perfectly than the Lord Jesus Christ. To see, if, you're, if your thirst is for love and you go f- look for that love in people or in things, you're never going to find it. You're never going to be satisfied because He'll never love you enough. But if you want Jesus to love you, He will fill your quest for love. In our hearts, we have a thirst to give love, to to love others. And there are people searching someone to love. And again, there is none more lovely and worthy to be loved than the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if If you want to satisfy the thirst to love someone by loving a person, and that's where it will be, at one moment or another, you will find that that love is going but never returning. And that will discourage you. But when you love the Lord Jesus, He will return your love infinitely. He will never slight your love. He will never disdain your love. He will be pleased with your love and increase your love for Him. Then there's some, and again, it seems like in all of these some, it is all of us, but... but there may be some who are at more times than others in some of these quests, but where we, we are thirsting for forgiveness of sins. We are thirsting for that guilt to be removed. And Every human has this desire to take away that heaviness in the conscience and the heaviness of sin that weighs. Some of us don't identify it as sin, and so we go in a different direction. And you never have that taken care of. The guilt only compounds because more sin is committed. But see again, if you go to the Lord Jesus, if you go to the cross of Christ, where you deposit sin, you confess it to Him, He will forgive you and cleanse you. It's it's even what we read in the text, that He will abundantly pardon, verse 7. See, if your quest is for forgiveness, He will satisfy that quest. And some may want, they are thirsting for assurance of faith. They long for assurance. They, they are thirsty for assurance. And the same thing. You, you can go in all kinds of directions. You'll never find it. But if you go to Christ, He will satisfy it. If you go to the Lord Jesus, you go to these waters, your thirst for assurance will be satisfied. Some may want 
um, power over indwelling sin. And your thirst is that only you could mortify sin. You, you are thirsting for the power against sin, to be freed from indwelling sin. If you want freedom from sin and you're dominated by it because you're not saved, it'll only happen through Christ. And by trusting in Jesus, the old man that actually is a master over you, he will be crucified and buried. And so Jesus will deliver you from the mastery of sin. And then once you are a Christian, if you have a thirst for power over indwelling sin, we don't go anywhere else. We keep going to Christ because it's in Him that we have strength against sin. In that little booklet and all the sermons that John Owen wrote about mortification of sin, at the very end, he summarizes the whole matter after he gave a lot of principles, biblical principles and disciplines about mortifying sin, understanding the deadliness of sin, the danger of temptation. At the very end, he says, at the end of the day, power for crucifying sin is in the crucified one. Because that's where the handwriting of our sins were nailed to the tree. You want power to mortify sin? You're thirsty for that? You go to Jesus. So whatever your thirst is, beloved. See, the universal thirst of this world. This is what evangelism in essence is. As we meet a soul, we need to help them understand that their thirst can only be met through Christ. And when they trust in Jesus, they're saved and their thirst will end. Their thirst for something more. But then what will begin is their thirst for Christ. And they'll just want Christ and more and more of Christ. But there'll be a sense of satisfaction all the time. Even while you want more of Christ, you will feel satisfied because you have Christ. It's a holy dissatisfaction. It's a holy discontentment because you want more of Christ. You know Him very little. You want to know Him more. You love Him too little. You want to love Him more. And, and even as you are in that pursuit, you are satisfied. You are full of joy. You are the church in chapter 54. So, beloved, remember this. There's nothing in this world that can satisfy your thirst. You are thirsty. Whoever I talk to, I know you're thirsty. But this text is saying, thirst for Jesus. And we will see how these waters and this wine and this milk are all met in Christ. They're figures for the Lord Jesus. Spurgeon said this, Oh, did you but know my master, you would find out that to know him is to love him. All things else in this world are insignificant in comparison with Him. As a candle is not to be compared to the sun at noonday, so the joys of this world are not worthy to be mentioned in the same century as the joys of communion with Christ. Get this, and you shall have overflowing joy. You shall be satisfied with marrow and fatness, and drink the wines on the lees well refined. And that's from Isaiah 25. So, not only does this, these sure mercies of David, this invitation comes <clears throat> um, with this invitation for everyone, um, and then, yes, those who thirst. But then a, a second thing about the invitation is, is the great generosity that is to be found in it. Not only is it for everyone, but it is for these waters in the plural. 
and then it is for wine, and then it is also for milk. And this right now, then, the, the generosity and the, the quantity. But then we can talk about also the reality of a generosity that it's without money and without price. And then there's a generosity of what we receive by coming. So we're invited to come, everyone, and it is to waters, to milk, and to, and to wine. And we don't need to pay anything. And we will see what we receive. There's generosity all surrounding. So don't think of a tiny brook and that, that's just bubbling some water and the brook hardly goes and maybe gets into the ground because it dries up and then a deer shows up and drinks it and then it's not there anymore. It's not that kind of water. The picture here when it says, come ye to the waters, is the idea of, of just a, a river that flows so profusely that no matter how many animals come alongside to drink of that water, no matter how many tributaries to irrigate the fields alongside and to irrigate the villages and cities, there's still water enough for everyone, everyone who thirsts. There's water. So it's generosity in that sense. But it's also, <clears throat> it's also generosity in the offer itself. It says, come and buy, come and eat. But then it says that there is no price. You can come without money. With the thought, when it says buy, the precious thing about that is that it's showing that we're not just coming for handouts that have no value. Every time you hear that something's free, you immediately think of the value of what's being given. And usually it's something very invaluable. But this is something to buy. So the word buy speaks of the value of what's being offered. But then the generosity of the offer is that it says that you can come without money and without price. It is valuable, but you don't need to pay. This world has many offers like that. You do hear of things that are for free. But like I said, often it's because it's not valuable, and always it's because they hope you'll spend more. If you get something for free, they're hoping you enter the store and buy more things maybe four times more valuable than the thing that you're taking for free. So it's really not free. But this is. You don't pay anything. We're going to see what you do is you trust and you repent. And that's not really work as we will see it. But look at the generosity in, in, in what's even being offered. We could say this is the grandest thing to be had. There, there are no greater blessings. It's summarized in verse 3. He says, incline your ear and come unto me here. See, let me tell you what the invitation is. This, this is a summary of what you will receive. Here and your soul shall live. And now notice the very word here. It's even put here as, as what you do. What, what is it that you do to receive this? Well, you listen to it. It's literally listen and live. 
You hear the invitation, you come to the one who's offering it, you listen to what he's saying, and you'll live. And and how long will this life be? And I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Eternal life is being offered for absolutely no money at all. And how do we know? I've been mentioning Christ, and I say that these types of water and wine and and, and milk are to be found in the Lord Jesus. Well, listen to Jesus himself. He knew of this prophecy, and when he was on earth, John 4.13, we read him making this offer. He says unto the peoples, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. The water from a well. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. This is Isaiah 55, 33. 1 through 33. 1 through verse 3. It's the Lord Jesus saying, come to me and you will have this life. Eat of me. I am true bread. And, and it's, it's at this point that I, I want to read, as it were, a quote um, from, from the Heidelberg Catechism. In, in our study of the Heidelberg Catechism, we are in Lord's Day 28. And in page 58, there is the answer to the first question. How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and of all his benefits? And notice, we talk about the Lord's Supper. It's all about eating and drinking. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. We eat and we drink. We don't pay any money. But we eat and drink. And what is it that we're receiving? We're receiving, we're partaking of Christ. And look at the answer. Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup in remembrance of Him. Adding these promises first, that His body was offered and broken on the cross for me and His blood shed for me as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me and further that He feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with His crucified body and shed blood as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. See, the Lord's Supper is is fortifying, as it were, the reality of Isaiah 55 and the promises Jesus made that if you drink of Him, you will have life. Look at the next question. What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? It is not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, So, so far we hear of faith and then forgiveness. But also besides that, to become more and more united to His sacred body by the Holy Ghost who dwells both in Christ and in us. So that we, though Christ is in heaven and we on earth, are notwithstanding flesh of His flesh and bone of His bones. And that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul.
This is the generosity of what we're being invited to do. We're being invited to taste of the Lord Jesus Christ, to eat Him. Now, the text makes a comparison. He speaks of water, it speaks of waters, of milk, and wine. Water, of course, gives life. Milk sustains us because it's food, and wine can gladden the heart. Water, therefore, strengthens us, milk nourishes us, and wine enlivens us. And when you come to Jesus, you have all of this you have life, you have strength, and you have joy. But then the text says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfies not? And it makes us think then of the bread the world has to offer, the wine that is earthly, the water that would be the idea of going to the world or going to people to satisfy this hunger. Well, the world provides water that is bad to the taste, that gives no inner joy. Salt water makes you thirstier. Dirty water makes you sick. And even poison that makes your life go away. The world's milk spoils. The world's wine makes one drunk. But Jesus Christ gives eternal life. And these are all metaphors for if you pursue to satisfy your thirst in people, in profit, in the pleasures of this world, they can literally kill you. You become addicted to drugs and you die. See, the the waters of the world are poisonous. But Christ will give you life. The sure mercies of David. An invitation And we looked at it, but now also these sure mercies of David, this invitation, it also comes with a reasoning. Look at verse 2. When he says to listen, he's saying, don't come to talk, come to listen. So when God is giving us an offering, he's not listening to what we have to offer him. It is not for us to tell God what what we think or what we want. We are the ones who are to listen. We are to hearken diligently. And he says, eat that which is good and let your soul delight itself in fatness. And so the argument is, choose what's good over what's evil. Choose what's true over what's false. Choose what's right over what is wrong. The world does not have what will satisfy your spiritual thirst or hunger. Matthew Henry also says this, All the wealth and pleasure in the world will not make one meal's meat for a soul. Eternal truth and eternal good are the only food for a rational and immortal soul, the life of which consists in reconciliation and conformity to God and in union and communion with Him. And let me give you an example of someone who had so much and he always wanted more. And then that's what happens. If you're going to try to satisfy your thirst with things that are of this world, 
It'll never satisfy, and you'll always want more. I'm thinking of Haman. Haman had a lot. He was the second in command in the Medo-Persian Empire. That was a very high statute. He was just below the king. He had all the riches he could ever desire. He had command over the empire of Persia. But he would still have all the Jews killed. And then, when that promise was made, he still wanted Mordecai's life. And then, when he was asked about honor, remember, he revealed that he wanted the king's crown and the king's vestment and the king's horse. In essence, he was saying, I want the throne. So no matter how much he had, he still wanted more. Now, the text is saying, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and you labor for that which satisfies not? And the indication here is, when you, when you go to the world to satisfy your pleasures, you will work hard, you'll never be satisfied, and you're going to sweat. And look what happened to Haman. How, how much he had to work to get what he wanted. He, he had to plot against the Jews. He had to build gallows throughout a whole night. He had to wake up early to make his request before the king. And then his reward was to parade Mordecai, proclaiming Mordecai's honor. And the irony is that this which he loathed the most was really the best work he ever did. When Haman declared the Mordecai's honor, he was proclaiming first, truth for the first time so that's the argument that's the reason and it's it's bidding us right to 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 accept this invitation and then a couple last things about how this sure mercies of david come it comes by an invitation but then it comes by a promise because when it says that we come and we listen, it says that we will receive this life. This is the first promise. But then in verse 5, there's a promise. It's a promise of how a great multitude will respond. It's almost to bring to the hearers like a holy jealousy and thinking, well, if they're all going, why have I not gone? Look at verse 5. Behold, thou shalt call a nation that thou knowest not, and nations that knew not thee shall run unto thee. And this is what we read also in that passage that I read um, from chapter 54, that when the suffering servant would come and his ministry would be proclaimed, the, the Gentiles would come in the hordes and they would receive this invitation. That's a promise. Many will accept the invitation. But then, um, this, these sure mercies don't just come by an invitation and by a promise. And fourthly and lastly, it comes, lastly in this first point, we're going soon to our second point. It comes by way of a command. This will connect us to our second point in just a little bit. What is the command? Look at verse 6 of 55. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Verse 6 is how you accept the invitation. 
How do you come to these waters? How do you listen to these invitation, this invitation? You, by seeking the Lord, by calling upon Him. This is, it's an emblem for faith. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You call upon Him. You ask Him. You say, yes, Lord, I want this water. I want this milk. I want this wine. I do not have money. Please save me or I die. And remember the word seek is always very powerful. It is seeking in terms of, of, of earnest, of having like this commitment in knowing the Lord. And there's an urgency here because we are not the ones who are given to, to find a suitable time for the seeking or the calling. It says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. The, what's implied here is that there will be a time in which he will not be found. There will be a moment in, will he, in which he will not be near. He's near now. But he will one day be far, and you will not be able to call upon him. For those who, who resist this invitation and say, well, whenever I'm ready, whenever it's suitable, I'll do the seeking, I'll, I'll do the calling. And the text is implying he will not always be near. He will not always be found. There's a sense of urgency. And none of us know when that will be for us individually. It's, it's not really a corporate Reality, it can be an individual reality. Like right now, you're in church, you're hearing God's word, and you can always say that as the word is going forth, you have the Bible open before you, you're hearing God's declaration to seek him and to call upon him. This means he is near, this means he is willing to be found. But one day, he will end this day of grace and salvation. And so this is the call to believe. Now, we go to our second point, the high thoughts of God. And what we're going to have here is what we often find in the Bible side by side. Repentance. How do we accept this invitation? By faith and repentance. Where do we find repentance in the text? Well, it is, of course, in verse 7. But for us to understand it rightly, we need to see verse 7 and 8 together. Verse 8, I've read about the thoughts of God being higher than ours. But see, verse 8 speaks of God's thoughts and God's ways. Look at verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. There's a parallel. The ways and the thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Well, how are your ways and thoughts, Lord? For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And beloved, in studying this passage, you find... Um, Spurgeon is one who says it, that, that this is God's command to repentance put into the most comforting way that seems possible. You don't even notice, in a sense, that this is a rebuke because it's coded with the gospel blessings of God's way and promise of pardon for those who do forsake their ways and forsake their thoughts. You see the parallel there? Here's the wicked. 
and he has ways. Here's the unrighteous. He has thoughts. And then here's God. He has ways and he has thoughts. And he says, mine are higher. And then the text shows us what these thoughts are that God has. Think of the contrast of thoughts. And before we do that, just one thing. When it speaks of the way of the wicked, we, 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 by the very phrase we see why these ways must be forsaken. Because they're ways of the wicked. See, notice the text. This is where, where grammar, understood very simple, is so important. Let the wicked forsake his way. What is that way? That's the way of the wicked. See, it's his way. Well, if it is his way, it is a wicked way. And so it's worthy to be forsaken. And then look at the thoughts. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. What are these thoughts? These are thoughts of the unrighteous. So they are unrighteous thoughts, which again are worthy to be forsaken. And, and, and that shows now the mind of people who, who are thirsting for something, but they know not what. They have ways that are wicked. They have thoughts that are unrighteous. And they have a thirst. So they try to satisfy this thirst in more unrighteousness, in more wickedness. And their thirst only grows. And see, God is, is giving them this invitation. And yes, it's a command. Because if you do this and return unto the Lord, He will have mercy upon Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And see, these are God's ways and God's thoughts. He's not just saying they're higher. He's saying what they are of. Here's the wicked. His thoughts are of wickedness. God's thoughts are of mercy. Here's the unrighteous. He has ways that are unrighteous. Here's God and His ways are of forgiveness, of abundance, of pardon. And you can even think if these are wicked people, their ways must be abundantly wicked. Here's God and His way is of abundance, of pardon. And so the text already said we, we need to believe, but we need to also repent. You cannot be someone who believes, but you're in the way and the thought of the wicked. It just doesn't work. And so God is preciously bringing in here the theme of repentance, making us think of the thoughts of God. And it's a wooing us then through those thoughts to realize it is not dangerous to approach God with all my sins because He will graciously forgive me. Now think of the contrast of these thoughts as God is disclosing, in essence, His thoughts for us. This whole sermon has been speaking of these thoughts. God has thoughts of inviting us. He has thoughts of making provisions for our coming waters and milk and of wine. He has thoughts toward everyone who thirsts, though those are His thoughts. He has thoughts of the freeness of the offer. Everyone can approach, even if you have no money of your own, no merit. He has thoughts of abundance of pardon. He has thoughts of bringing Gentile people from many nations and making them become His people. He has thoughts to make nations run to the Messiah. And we know these thoughts are the sure mercies of David. They're not just fleeting thoughts. They're certain thoughts. 
And implied in the text, when it says that his are higher, what's implied in our text is that our thoughts are that God isn't that generous and that free. That we, we wonder if he'll have water enough. Will there be water for me? We, we wonder if the milk or the wine is truly free. Is his wine truly better than the wine the world has to offer? We have thoughts of not coming. We have thoughts of thirsting in another direction. We have thoughts of not listening to the one who's speaking, of doubting that he's so willing to forgive our sins. Or worse, we have thoughts that are simply sinful and we don't want to forsake them. And worse of all is that we have ill thoughts of God. And in all of these thoughts, see, if, if, if your thoughts matches any of these, God is saying, mine are free for you are greater. Now, think of where we see this so clearly. It's in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, even, even as Jesus is walking upon this earth, and we know his thoughts, his thoughts are to love the people he ministers to. His thoughts are to reveal himself as the Messiah. His thoughts are to die on that cross. His thoughts are to forgive sinners when he dies. And he's, his thought is to be buried and to be resurrected and ascend into heaven. These are the thoughts of Christ. Meanwhile, the thoughts of men are, how can we get rid of him? How can we betray him? I must deny him. The soldier had the thought of nailing the nail. While Jesus' thought was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think of that contrast, beloved. Here's Jesus, now nailed to the cross. He looks at the crowd sinning. He says, Father, forgive them. That's the Father's thoughts for us. What were their thoughts for him? If you are the Messiah, get down from the cross, and we will believe in you. You healed others, yourself you cannot save. You see the thoughts of the wicked and the thoughts of Jesus. You could easily see Christ telling the crowd also, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. And John Calvin, he puts it in this sense too and he says this men are wont to judge and measure God from themselves for their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased and therefore they think that they cannot be reconciled to God when they have once offended him but the Lord shows that he is far from resembling men as if he had said, I am not a mortal man that I should show myself to be harsh and irreconcilable to you. My thoughts are very different from your thoughts. And then we can think of this also when we think of the thoughts. By God's grace, as a child of the Lord, you have good thoughts of the Lord. And then you would hear him say, mine are higher. You may have good thoughts of good things, like, I want to repent. God's thoughts are higher. 
I want you to repent more. Your thoughts are, I want to love thee, Lord. And God's thoughts are, I want you to love me more. And you can. And Spurgeon puts this in a sermon. Are your ways now right towards your father? Do you begin with trembling footsteps to seek his house? Lo, he runs to meet you. The prodigal's father meets him far more than halfway, for his ways are above our ways. Do you stand before him weeping? It is well. These ways of repentance are good, but better are the ways of God, for Jesus stands before you bleeding for your sake. He gives blood instead of tears. Do you love the Redeemer because of His dying for you? Alas, you do not love as greatly as He loves you. His love is as a sea, and yours a tiny brook. Will you from now on give Him all your life, yet not such a life as He gives to you, a life perfect and eternal and all for you? He lives for you and says, Because I live, you shall live also. Isn't that a precious sermon to think? Even the good thoughts we have in the right ways, we can be encouraged to know that gods are higher. And and I, I loved how Spurgeon put it, that we can be even trembling and repenting for our sins. That's good and well. What does Jesus do? He he didn't just weep, but he shed his blood over us so that we would repent. Calvin says, God is infinitely compassionate and infinitely ready to forgive so that it ought to be ascribed exclusively to our unbelief if we do not obtain pardon from Him. If we don't come, if we don't want to listen and live. And then thirdly, and this is a quick conclusion, the divine guarantee And what I mean by this is that all throughout, all throughout this invitation, there have been some guarantees. Just like there were four times come and four times listen, there are four guarantees. The first one is in verse 3, because it's, it's a promise of an eternal covenant. Incline your ears and come unto me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. That's a guarantee. It is God promising an everlasting covenant. In verse 4, we, we see him, um, God is giving a leader and a commander. It is a guarantee. Look at verse 4. Behold, I have given him for a witness to the people, a leader and a commander to the people. It's referring to David, but since David is here a type of Christ, Christ is the leader and the commander of his people that God has given for a witness. And so there's the guarantee of God's everlasting covenant, the guarantee of the Messiah that was promised, and we know it's been fulfilled. In verse 5, there is the guarantee that in that promise that we already saw, where, where a people that was not a people would, would come to himself, um, and it would be, um, look at verse 5, it would be because of the Lord thy God and for the Holy One of Israel, for he hath glorified thee. So God's everlasting covenant, God's leader and commander, God himself as the Holy One of Israel puts himself as a guarantee. And lastly, it's God's word, God's covenant, God's son, God himself. And you could say God's word is God the Holy Spirit as he's inspired the word. Because look at verse 10. 
For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not hither, thither, but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. God gives this guarantee that all that he has been proclaiming will be certainly done and he gives in creation, in nature, an illustration. We know what it rains, what it does, and we know when it snows, what it does. It's, it's precipitation upon the earth, and things get green. And in time, they give fruit. They give seed, and then fruit. And then there's a tree to bear more fruit. When it says it, it, it returns not thither, it's meaning it, the rain doesn't come and goes back doing nothing. It will not go back until it does its duty. And what is its duty? To nourish the ground, to make green the fields, to give fruit so that it gives life. And it's God saying, as certain as that cycle of rain happens in the earth, so will my word not return to me void. It'll bear the fruit that I want it to bear. Look at the comparisons. As rain and snow are from above, so is the word of God from above. As rain and snow are gifts of God, the word of God is a gift from God. As rain and snow have a nourishing effect, so does God's word. And as rain and snow bring forth fruit, so does the word of God fruit unto eternal life. Rain and snow can bring forth bread. The word of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the bread from heaven. If you believe in him and if you repent of your sins, you have the sure mercies of David as a promise to you. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God, we thank Thee, Lord, for this invitation. We thank Thee that Thy thoughts are higher than ours. Lord, forgive us for every unrighteous thought. Forgive us for every wicked way. Help us, Lord, in forsaking these to also hate them and not desire those thoughts any longer and not desire those ways because Lord we see in thy word and we believe that thy thoughts and thy ways are higher thy thoughts are of salvation and that we would be eternally blessed in thy presence through thy son the Lord Jesus and we embrace that way Lord and we want to call and we want to seek thee while thou mayest be found and Lord, we pray that Thou would encourage those who, who need salvation or who have been saved but feel distant from Thee. Lord, that we would thirst then in the right direction and have our eyes opened to that which is so glorious and good. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.